The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com slash disclosures. Well, Cedric, Cedric thanks for joining us. Yeah, totally. So, um, so full, full disclosures, uh, I was lucky enough to work with Cedric at Box, uh, where he helped build out our entire red team infrastructure. Um, and just this week or last week, over the last couple of weeks, I guess, um, Cedric created the biggest security vulnerability in Apple computers, I guess, in, in many years, according to Forbes. Uh, so it was a, a pretty substantial compromise. And Cedric, I'd, I'd love to maybe start off with just, um, perhaps you could just give us an intro. I know that I, I did a bit of your, 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 your origin story, but um, would love to get your intro and, and maybe start from there. Sure, sounds good. Uh, thank you all first for even inviting me to be here. Uh, as Joel mentioned, um, Joel, I, I actually work under Joel at Box. Uh, that was about two and a half years ago. But prior to that, I actually came from a blue team background. Um, I started off in security um, in the classified space in the DC area for NSA as a contractor. And that's sort of how I fell into cybersecurity. And then I pivoted um, from the federal sector into the private sector, worked at NetApp, uh, as a defender. Uh, towards the end of my six-year stint at NetApp, I transitioned over to the offensive side. And then from NetApp, went to Box for about two and a half years, building the red team program from the ground up. And now I'm at Twilio, uh, really doing the same thing. I started off as a one-person red team, kind of proving out what a red team is, why it's important, why the company should care and invest. And uh, so I've been there for almost a year. But I uh, just got a headcount for a second person who just started this week. So I've doubled in size. Congratulations. <laughs> awesome. Congrats. Hey, maybe, <laughs> thank you, maybe, thank you. Maybe, maybe for folks listening, so blue team, red team are pretty uh, esoteric terms. Maybe, maybe you could break that down for us a little bit and give us some background on what that means. Yes, good point. So in uh, security world, we refer to blue team as our defenders or protectors of the network. So they're constantly checking the environment for intrusion attempts or the presence of, of uh, malicious software or actors. And then once it's found, they invoke the incident response procedures in order to uh, scope everything that may have been affected and kick them out. So that's kind of like your blue team, your defense. And then red team is what we call like adversary emulation. So that's the side that I'm on now where we study what real world bad guys are doing who attack corporations and then we mimic them in order to give our defenders uh, a feel for what it would be like if an adversary were trying to do X, Y, and Z. So it gives them a chance to actually, our defenders a chance to invoke their procedures, test their detections, test their response, look for gaps, and shore those up before a real adversary actually would do it. Gotcha. And, and, and maybe it'd be interesting to hear a bit about sort of like how you, how, is there like a, a school for dark arts that you attend or how do you, how do you adapt these or, <laughs> or, 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 or develop these skills? Yeah, it's, it's a very um, interesting niche, I would say. Uh, for myself, I went to school in IT. So even the time, I'm not like that, that old, but uh, when I went to school, like there was no uh, specialty in cybersecurity. So it was like IT. And so when I came out, um, what I found is I kind of hopped around into a few different roles until I uh, sort of started figuring out what it was I wanted to do. 
And for me, I knew it was cybersecurity. I just didn't know what it was. So I started off as a defender. Um, that seemed to be a really good place for me because I had good IT skills and I wanted to start using them in security. And for me, uh, the way I started getting offensive skills was like I built a little lab at home, virtual machines. Of um, At the time, it was Backtrack Linux was like the, the platform to use that attackers were using. They had all the pen test tools baked in. So I built a little simple lab where I had like a, a vulnerable Linux server, vulnerable Windows, and then I had my Backtrack Linux. And I would like play around, read up on different ways to attack it. Um, then I took the OSCP training class and started really learning some methodologies for how like attackers progressively, you know, move throughout different attack phases mm-hmm. and, uh, got that under the belt. And eventually my job, um, I had a good friend who was on the offensive side and we concocted a plan where he let me shadow him. And then eventually like six months later, I moved over to his team and sort of, that's my path, I would say. Nice. Um, but it kind of differs, I would say per person. So gotcha. I, got a, I, got, I got a question for you, Cedric. You have any? Do you have a good story of uh, of a time where you thought you were doing a really good attack, but you got busted? Oh, let me think on that one. Um, <laughs> I would say probably a slightly different scenario, but uh, kind of early in my attack days, we stood up. Um, so this was this was um, when I was working in a Windows environment and uh, just learning the offensive side. So I get the idea like, oh, I want to test this detection and I'm going to stand up a command and control server on the Internet. Um, So at the time I was using Cobalt Strike, stood it up on the Internet and uh, I was thinking, oh, it's just going to be a quick test. Like I'm no need to like lock it down or anything. I'm just going to put it out there. And I stood it up on the Internet and literally like maybe three or four minutes after I stood up the server, I got a call back from the server, but it wasn't anything in our environment. And I'm like, me and operators are looking at each other like, what the world is going on? So we quickly panicked, like shut the server down. And long story short, it was probably like some intelligence service that was out scanning the internet. And it found our server, it found a hosted payload. So it like automated and pulled it down and ran it so it could like collect indicators. So that scared the mess out of me. And it was like a firsthand lesson. Like you need to lock your stuff down if you're going public, like putting your stuff on the internet. Let that be a lesson to you, kids. Uh, no matter how many times you ask for a firewall rule, that's just going to be just for a minute. Somebody out there is going to find it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The other other countries' intelligence agencies are always watching. Just remember that. <laughs> yes. Uh, there is no Ali Ali oxen free. There is no uh, 24-hour leeway that you get for putting stuff on the internet. It, it is all live all the time. <laughs> yes, I learned that firsthand. <laughs> so, 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 Cedric, I think in the entire time that I've known you, you've spent a lot of your efforts in undermining Mac OS security, specifically Gatekeeper. Um, maybe, maybe you could spend a little bit of time sort of just giving a high level overview of what that is and kind of like maybe build up to kind of how you work through cracking. Uh, yeah, and when system. we're done, can you talk about how much you've undermined Joel? I think that would yes, be Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you blew up well, every program I ever built. <laughs> I may or may not in my time under Joel have fished him, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Just don't say that what the lure was because then people will use it again. This doesn't work. And no, I'm not going. <laughs> no. oh, um, so, yeah, Gatekeeper on the Mac side. So um, I'll try to explain it like this. So in the Windows world, um, the way Windows operates is 
Like it's it's a lot of third Windows leverages a lot of third party tools like antivirus and uh, whitelisting and all these different third party tools that are available for for Windows that essentially lock the, the system down from like unapproved things executing or malware. The uh, Apple's approach is very different for how they control their devices, and so uh, a couple of things that Apple did to bring and basically all the control for what's executed on their machines in-house to themselves. They implemented one uh, that applications that are applications or installer packages, uh, Maco binaries, which are executables for Mac, those things that typically would run on um, Mac platforms, they have to have a valid developer signature. So you have to go to developer.apple.com, pay a hundred bucks, sign up for a developer account, where they validate your identity, who you are, uh, billing information, all that stuff, then you can actually um, build a developer certificate. So uh, Mac OS, or Apple requires that certain binaries uh, be signed with developer certificates. And then second, they require that these same types of binaries that are run, that they be uploaded to Apple, uh, a process called notarization, where Apple will scan them through their, their scanners. I'm not quite sure everything they, that they look for, but it does include some aspect of maliciousness that it checks for. And so um, uh, basically, it, if it passes notarization, you get a, um, a ticket that gets appended to your file. So that's where Gatekeeper comes in. Gatekeeper is the means of enforcing or ensuring that files that people are running on their Macs pass those two checks. Like it's got to be uh, signed with a valid developer ID. It's got to be notarized. And so Gatekeeper for Mac is the central, it's like the main security piece um, that, that Apple relies on in terms of protecting users. And what's so important about Gatekeeper is um, if you get, like if you find a bypass around Gatekeeper, there are no other similar um, tools or mechanisms for Mac OS that can give you the same level of protection that Gatekeeper provides. Like on Windows, if you bypass a product, fine. Like you can you can go to another product, get that set up. Hopefully, it has better preventions or defenses. But if you do that on the Mac side with Gatekeeper, like you're you're pretty much not protected until Apple releases a patch. Well, and, um, and these that, does that make any sense? Yeah, totally. And and so like you know back in the day, the first version of this was probably like a product like Bit Nine. I think was probably one of the first like big commercially successful binaries, and and Bit Nine was kind of became unfortunately famous because the Chinese got in there and took the signing certificates and then used it to sign malware that they rolled through the intelligence community. Um, and so, and so, yeah, you know, it happens. Um, and so I guess from when you're, when you're taking a look at this, Cedric, like, obviously it sounds like Apple has their act together on the registration side. At least there seems to be some pretty good points. And so you decided to focus on the client side on the endpoint and kind of, how did you approach that? Yeah, so uh, the funny thing is this bug that, that I found, essentially, I was really um, just kind of poking around one night and thinking in advance for a red team operation of like, I want, it, I want an interesting payload. Because all the other payloads um, outside of this bug require, like I was mentioning, like a developer ID and notarization and requires all this these extra steps that just make it painful. So I started poking around, and one idea I had was, let me look at normal apps that are on macOS devices. Let me see what the directory structure is, like what's inside of each folder, um, because the .app uh, 
file itself is actually a directory structure. So I started kind of looking around and I noticed similarities with how all the apps were structured, where you have like the name at the top level, then you have a contents folder, and then under contents, you have Mac OS. And then under Mac OS, you have a Maco binary, which is a Mac executable um, at the bottom. So I started thinking um, some things I've learned about Gatekeeper is Gatekeeper only checks certain file types. And when I say that, Gatekeeper does not check scripts. So shell scripts, Python scripts, JavaScript doesn't check any of those. It checks like app packages, installer packages, Maco binaries. So the idea I had was what if I replace, I take the normal um, directory structure of a, a Mac app, and instead of having a Mako at the bottom, since Mako is checked by Gatekeeper, what if I swap that out and put a shell script at the bottom? Just like what would happen? So that was kind of the idea I had. I started digging, researching to see if anybody else had used this, this technique. Um, what I did, uh, basically I found that I couldn't find any evidence of an attacker using it, but I did find about 10 years ago, uh, some admins had written a script called Appify, A-P-P-I-F-Y, and they used the exact same concept. Of course, they weren't using it maliciously, but they used this concept to create, take shell scripts and turn them into quote unquote apps where you can mm -hmm. just double click a shell script and it'll run. Like you don't have to remember a very long terminal command. You can just save it, build it into this fake app and double click it. Um, and so that was kind of the, the path I went down is like, oh, this looks like it will work. Started testing it. Um, it was working. I even tested downloading it from the internet, which is what a real real user would do. And when you download on Mac, the operating system appends something called a quarantine attribute to it. And that quarantine attribute lets the operating system know to send it to Gatekeeper when it's executed. So um, I even checked that and still like double clicked it, ran it, and was pretty shocked that like, whoa, Gatekeeper didn't even alert. I wasn't prompted. I just ran malware and like, I would have never known. Um, so that's kind of my process for how I found this and the road I went down. That sounds like a feature, not a bug, to be quite honest. <laughs> like, Just, I mean, so, we'll talk for a minute. That's It's a great example of how everything that uh, an admin does or that that defenders do sometimes can be used against you, right? It, everything has a, a secondary purpose. And and how most attacks happen just like this, where you're using something, you're living off the land. You're using something that administrators uh, might use or might be intentionally there uh, for a nefarious purpose. Uh, and it's part of what makes this job so challenging. Yeah, exactly. And that's what, what shocked me so much because Apple has really put a lot of effort and kudos to Apple for all that they've done because as a red teamer, attacking Mac has become a pain in general because of all these layers of defenses and things you have to worry about. So I was pretty shocked just seeing that this technique um, like actually worked. And it kind of shows that um, in the security world, things that may be viewed as old or obsolete sometimes still can resurface and be useful today. Oh, the boring stuff is the sexiest stuff. <laughs> well, that's what, exactly. yeah, sure. I put that on my profile. Didn't help. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but so, 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 Cedric, we, this show usually, I mean, for the most part, we try to focus on breaches, and this show is a little bit different because um, you, you actually probably help the world avert a bunch of breaches. Um, but one of the interesting things is that you, you, worked with, you worked with Apple, obviously. You reported the vulnerability to them. Um, 
have always mostly heard great things. Would love to kind of get your experience on how they responded to the security incident and kind of how that whole process ran. Sure. So um, I found from the day that I found and reported it, it was about five days later um, where Apple essentially released a beta version of uh, Mac OS 11.3, which is, which is the version that has the patch. So they released the beta version five days after I reported that version had to fix but they didn't actually email me and tell me that. Like I actually had to watch, um, they have beta, a, a site where you can download all the betas and it just popped up. So I kind of had to watch that myself. And when I saw it, I was able to pull it down, install it, and then run the same test. So then um, I just checked in with Apple, like sent them a note and said, hey, just checking in on the status of this ticket number, is there any progress? Uh, then they responded and said, hey, can you test uh, beta 7, which was the next iteration. So I pulled that down, tested, said, yep, this looks good. Like uh, the fix seems to be applied. Um, and then at that point, they basically said, uh, thank me for reporting it and for helping keep their systems uh, secure. And at that point, like I wasn't sure when 11.3 was coming out. Uh, it was kind of quiet and um, essentially about, about two or two, maybe three weeks later, 11.3 came out. And so um, at that point, um, Apple releases their advisories, security advisories, alongside of their operating system updates. So I checked the advisory just to make sure uh, the documentation was in there. And they had two CVE numbers, and the descriptions of them looked very similar to the bug I found. But they put anonymous researcher um, by it. So I was kind of shocked by that because one of the previous messages they sent, they asked me how I wanted to be credited. Um, and I told them, you know, first name, last name. So I reported that to them. They apologized. And about two days later, they fixed it. And now, like, I can see what CVE number it is, et cetera. So now they fixed that. And then my last follow-up question to them was, is this considered bounty eligible? And um, last thing I've heard is they, like, Apple will wait until um, a fix for whatever bug you report is released. And then they, at some point later, they didn't say when, but at some point later, they make a determination on bounty eligibility. And that's sort of where I'm at now, just kind of waiting. I don't know if it would be next week, like six months from now, <laughs> three months. I have no idea. They're probably going to have their recruiters call you, and that'll be your bounty. <laughs> <laughs> as long as the right. lawyers don't call. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> Although I, right. I will say, um, I just want to I want to highlight that experience that you had is is relatively exceptional, right? I think that kind of response within days and and shipping a beta immediately is exactly what everyone hopes for. But that's that's also to Apple's credit, like that's an amazingly quick response time for the kind of uh, the kind of issue that's involved. Like this isn't patching a website; it's it's changing the way an operating system interrogates binaries and decides to run them. And having a beta out in five days is is awesome. Like that, you know, kudos to Apple for that. Yeah, I, I, exact same sentiment. Uh, when I finally, so on Apple's end, they say you can't share anything on it until the fix comes out. So as soon as 11.3 came out, like I was able to share. And that was one of the first things I mentioned was kudos to Apple because I thought that was a really quick fix. And to me, it spoke to how Apple viewed the severity of it. Um, even if they didn't come out and say it, just how quickly they rolled it in um, to fix into their next operating system upgrade. I thought that was phenomenal. So, so I think kind of two questions kind of at the, the end of this that, that, that kind of want to, would love to ask. The first is like craziest hack you've done. Um, and it better not be how you got into my email. 
Uh, and then the, se- the second, the second is for the for the blue team folks on the team. What's the one thing that always trips you guys up? Like, what's the one thing people should do that can stop people like you from destroying them entirely? Sure. Um, so for your first question, I'll say the funnest or most interesting um, on the offensive side was essentially um, having a so the company I was at we had a externally facing sales group. Uh, that did inbound sales calls. So their their role, given their their team that they were on, was expecting to for people to reach out to them, and you know express interest in the product. So uh, one idea that we had on the red team at the time was, why don't we test that? You know, why don't we um, stand up like a fake company name, um, state that we're interested in you know, purchasing the company's product, but we might need some help and say, essentially, like we're, we're a small company with um, a small IT shop, kind of old school. So they use macros in our documents. So I'm sorry, you have to enable macros. <laughs> you know, like that was kind of our, <laughs> our whole, <laughs> that was kind of our whole like approach. And we, it, it worked well. Like we, we got on the phone and built really good rapport with the sales rep. Uh, like we found, we basically started talking about the area that the the office the sales office was in, like, you know, saying we've been there on vacation and, you know, just really building rapport with them. And um, so I had a good call. And after the call, we exchanged some benign emails of just, you know, following up, thanking them, sending some more information about the company, et cetera. And then right at the end is when we send the, um, the office document that had a macro in it. And we had already set the stage because in our call, we told them, like, we're an antiquated uh, IT shop that uses macros. And sure enough, like, uh, that that worked out well, and they detonated it, and we got access. Uh, so for me, like, taking interesting paths like that, um, I think those are always rewarding because you find gaps that you wouldn't, you would, otherwise you wouldn't know existed in your processes. Like, this externally facing team, do they know who to reach out to? Um, do they know when they should reach out to that to the security team? Um, does the blue team have visibility? Because sometimes, like your your uh, externally facing teams, like support, they may use a different email system than your corporate clients. So a lot of things like that come to light when you test those kinds of, of scenarios. Um, in terms of the defender side, I say one thing that that does stop um, or make attacks a lot harder. I would say is having um, multi-factor authentication on many layers. So not just that, like the perimeter layer. And then once you're inside, like everything's trusted. Um, Like having MFA on every, on as many authentications as possible. So that even once an attacker gets in, they still um, require 2FA codes and things like that to hit uh, or log into different services. So going back to that defense in depth of um, MFA, you know, having... Um, requiring longer passwords. So if an, uh, an attacker attempts to do a password spray, you know, something like summer 2021, like that password is too short, right? Having longer password policy. So I would say a lot of the basics like that uh, really make the attacker's life a lot harder. Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah, good. So I, I guess I have a, a somewhat loaded question for you, but when you think about um, the kind of things that make your job harder uh is it or let me put it this way the kind of things that make your job easier are they technology or are they human related you know what's the what is the thing that we need to focus on more uh that's uh that's a really good question um because even at the human layer i like to assume that at some point 
like the human layer, like that, that an attack will work at the human layer. Um, because I remember <clears throat> hearing, um, I can't think of his name now. I think it's, his name was Chris Had, Hagnady, but uh, he does like um, a lot of talks on social engineering. And he was telling us an audience, he's like, I write books on social engineering. I've been doing trainings on social engineering. I just got social engineered. And that really stuck with me um, of how he fell for a phishing email. So I will, I like to assume that the human layer, like you're going to get success at that layer at some point in time. And so um, then comes like the technical layer where you want to have your preventions in place, as many preventions as possible, um, where like maybe only necessary stuff, necessary services and ports are up or available. Um, but even eventually the preventions are going to fail. And so then it comes to the next layer of tech, which is detections. Um, and for me, that's kind of like the mindset I like to think of is just assuming that an attacker is going to get in and have some level of success. Like now let's at least put our energy into seeing what this looks like in our environment, figuring out um, how we can detect it, and then working on our response procedures so that we can respond effectively and boot the adversary out. So that's kind of my, my perspective on it. Oh, good stuff. Thanks for that perspective. Sure thing. Awesome. Well, Cedric, thanks a ton for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, this um, was great. Thank you. Congratulations. Whatever power I have to influence Apple, I hope they give you a large bug bounty. I'll put that out there in the, in the universe. Um, <laughs> I will text it, Tim Apple and make sure that uh, he takes care of me. And even if they <laughs> yes. don't... Even if they don't give you a huge bu a huge bug bounty, I'm sure the comp adjustment you'll get from the uh, notoriety will definitely uh, will definitely help that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Appreciate you awesome. all having me on. Thanks awesome. for being here. Thanks, Great. So, Jeff, it looks like it's that time where we'll take a few questions from the audience. Um, Let's do it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we've we've come to that time at Breach of the Week where, even though we didn't talk about breaches specifically this week, we would love to have your questions. So as a reminder, uh, this is recorded and uh, published as part of uh, Andreessen Horowitz's live events uh, podcast. So if you raise your hand, and we'd love it if you did, you are uh, consenting to be part of the podcast. Uh, but with that being said, please raise your hand. We'll invite you up to the stage. We'll take your questions. We'll leave Cedric up here. Maybe he'll have uh, some questions for him. Uh, and that's it. Raise your hand. Let's do this. But if you don't, Joel will sing. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh man, no, that's I'm good on that one. <laughs> I think we've got one raised hand. All right, so Neil, you're you're the first contestant on the breach of the week, uh, where the prizes don't exist and there are in fact no no rules. But if you have a question for us, how about it? Yeah, my question is more uh, on the healthcare side. I work for Anthem.ai. Um, which is an AI digital org of Anthem. Hey, uh, man. You know, everyone oh, you do that? Anthem breaches in the past. So I was curious, yeah, this uh, was what's the uh, health, uh, you know, the security slash breach, um, which is going to be uh, impacting healthcare with the pandemic? Uh, what kind of uh, security protocols uh, is going to be in place for future? I was just curious uh, thoughts from the moderators and the panelists. Sure. So uh, let me let me see if I can understand the question because we, we got interrupted there. Uh, is the question here, what do we think the future is going to look like for healthcare security? Yes. Yeah. What do you what do you think, Joel, Cedric? Sure. 
Um, for healthcare, well, I think there was a question of COVID. Um, and, and I think in our, and we, we did a podcast a while back on A16Z about the impact of the impact of COVID on security. And, you know, you're free to, free to go watch that. And I won't kind of parrot that out again, but um, at, a, at a high level, COVID just essentially pulled a bunch of trends forward. So now like remote work is permanent and we have to deal with this distributed workforce. Um, what's interesting with uh, the healthcare situation though, is that like, you know, like the fundamental thesis of Andries and Horowitz is that software is eating the world and that every business is becoming a software business. And that's certainly happening in healthcare. Uh, and so what we've, you know, started to see is that a lot of bio and healthcare companies look like tech companies and they hire the same people or the same kind of profile of people. Uh, and now they're subject to the same kind of problems. And so we had a, a show that we did on ransomware not too long ago where someone was talking about a a biotech company that managed to sequence, you know, a bunch of important things, and they had these developments that they had built, and um, and then a ransomware group came in, encrypted their database, and then kind of, you know, held them for ransom. And so I would say that like the future of healthcare is essentially going to look a lot like the future of like the past of tech, uh, and and a lot of these threats and issues that we have from a security perspective are really just going to converge. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I think. Not, you know, when it comes to security, especially when it comes to sort of technology security, everything is a technology company now. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're healthcare or uh, or some other critical infrastructure component like uh, a water company or an electric company. This is this is going to be something that we have to manage and invest more in, uh, regardless of your sort of uh, your sort of main industry. Cedric, like do you have any the... thoughts you want to add here? Oh, go ahead, Joel. Well, I was just going to say, like the, the the pie on the why, like the pie pie in the sky, scary thought that I have, and I, I hate to be like the the weirdo. Uh, well, I guess I always am, but um, like the thing that's really scary is that like biology now, like we're we're building and engineering a lot of like really fundamental blocks of life, right? And so like you know, there's we we've seen with intelligence agencies like Stuxnet, right? Like you can write software that breaks machines. Right. Like you're, you have to believe that at some point in the near future, as we're doing all this crazy bioengineering stuff, that there will be the ability to have software move into the biospace and perhaps, you know, manipulate formulas for, you know, different sorts of things that they're manufacturing. And that, that would be kind of like the end state, scary, horrible outcome. Cedric, what's yeah, the attacker agree. perspective here? Yeah, 100% agree. Um, of course, I work more in the pure tech space, but I do think a lot of the, the risks are converging where, in the healthcare space, especially like my, my mindset went to ransomware immediately um, just because like we've seen it and feel like it's ramping up. So just being prepared just in terms of like what that looks like, uh, what your procedures are, who like you need to rope in, just having all that stuff um, sort of in, in a place where you can get to it quickly um, and, and ensuring that like you're prepared in case that were to go down. That's kind of where my mind went to. Well, great. Thanks for the question, Sunil, and, and apologies for the difficulties at the beginning. All right. Uh, uh, sure, Doss, welcome. You, Thank you, everyone. Absolutely. Doss, you raised your hand. Uh, and Doss, uh, everybody, is somebody that helps us make this fantastic show. What, what question you got for us? Uh, hey, guys. So thanks for bringing me up. And Cedric, awesome to have you on. Um, I did a podcast. You mentioned ransomware. I did one with Joel a little while back, kind of all about ransomware. And the thing that like stood out the most to me was how 
a lot of the stuff that you guys are up against in security really comes down to this like kind of misaligned incentives. So my question to you is like kind of either to a security leader in enterprise today or just like the security industry in general, what are like the changes you would want to make to kind of start to address some of those uh, incentive issues? Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> Joel, Cedric? Yeah, let me work on my PhD thesis real quick. No, um, I think that uh, I'm going to have to, like, that's that's a really tough question. And I think that from an incentives perspective, like right right now for enterprise startups, and I guess it's because we mostly work with, or at least I mostly work with early stage companies, um, like enterprise startups start thinking about security usually after they found kind of their product market fit. Uh, and, and that's, they usually encounter security as they start trying to sell to enterprises. Uh, and that's, when they have to do security questionnaires, that's when they have to think about compliance frameworks and certifications. And so like, there is an incentive for them to care about security fairly early in the life of their company, but not necessarily early enough for it to be less painful. And so I think that a lot of this on the enterprise side comes back to just like, man, it would be great if there was just a really clear-cut standard that any company, you know, whether it's a small startup or a large multinational, a standard they could adopt, they could implement, they could measure, and that would just kind of set them on the path for success, like from the get-go. Like, and I think that would be great. And I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily something where there's like a, a commercial opportunity because like, you know, you know, NIST and, and ANSI and all these standards bodies generally are kind of not-for-profits or run by or funded by governments. Um, so I, I don't necessarily know how that works, but certainly that would help uh, from an incentives perspective and make it a little bit easier. Yeah, I think I, I think the misaligned incentives here are really, especially in the enterprise space, but also in the consumer space, that the growth, you know, driving growth of the business, even if it's not just growth uh, of sales or revenue, is always uh, a better way to make sure that the business exists. And I've talked to a lot of C, uh, CEOs of the year, and and I over the years, and I've asked the question before. If you could choose between a company that was perfectly secure and then you know grew steadily ten to twenty percent year over year, or a company that you know basically was guaranteed to have a security problem but grew one hundred percent year over year, which would you choose? And I've never heard a CEO say that they would take anything other than one hundred percent year over year growth, uh, which frankly is probably the right decision if you're the CEO of a, of a startup organization. But it, it's an indication that. You know, there aren't real standards. Uh, you know, there's a focus the business uh, has uh, of providing service or delivering that value to their customers. And right now, the customers won't pay extra and in many ways won't, uh, won't not buy just because you're not secure. Uh, and I think that is shifting slowly, but it's not there yet. The one thing I will mention is there is a there's a much more accessible set of standards if you are a startup or if you're thinking about uh, building a startup at enterpriseready.io um, that uh, a, that another startup has put together very very helpfully that gives you the basics of you know here are the kind of fundamental building blocks that you should have as part of your enterprise startup that will help you be secure and and more importantly help you secure enterprise business because you meet the basic security requirements and i think frankly we need more of that uh from nist and less of uh you know sort of the view of everybody who's doing security is a giant fortune 500 organization i don't know cedric you have any, any thoughts here you want to add uh very well said 100 percent agree and just um like you have to have compliance but making sure that 
you're getting the actual security lens on things as well, um, especially around things like acquisitions, uh, as an example, like um, being able to either hire a third party to effectively like check out what you're buying before you buy it in terms of seeing what's in the environment, what the attack paths look like there, are they already compromised and they don't know it. Um, just being able to do more than just like the paper trail, but also look under the hood and see what the actual state of things are in either like an acquisition or in your own environment through an adversarial lens. Um, so that's that's kind of what came to my mind. Good stuff. Thanks for the question, Doss. All right, I'm going to bump you back to the audience. Uh, and good. good stuff. Thanks. And then uh, Nikhil, you have any? You have a question for us? Hey, hi guys. Uh, morning. I'm Nikhil, dialing in from Singapore, and I'm also part of cybersecurity right now. Uh, I had quick questions, like I'm completely collecting a lot of data from the breaches, like we have this databases which has been revealed. So I just wanted to quickly check what could be a good use case by like having these all databases from the breaches. One I what what I'm using is like. Okay. I don't know if uh, Joel or Jeff, can you all hear? It sounds like he's breaking up pretty bad. Yeah, I, I think, in, and Nikhil, you're breaking up quite a bit. I think your question is, um, there are a bunch of databases that are out there in the public that are from breaches with breach data or password databases, and what, what yeah. value do they have? Yeah, and I think, Cedric, Go that's probably a, probably a question for you, um, kind of like in terms of tooling for Red Team, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yep, yep. Sure. Sorry. I think it might have been my connection that dropped for a while. Um, you mind repeating one more time? Sorry about that. Oh, so, so, so Nikhil was asking about um, there's a bunch of data that's out there, like databases from compromises and breaches. And uh, think, think of like, have I been pwned, right? Like that uh -huh. kind of stuff. Um, yep. Nikhil was asking kind of like what the role of that data is in terms of kind of red teaming and, and, and that sort of stuff. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I would say the, the first thing that comes to my mind is the, uh, the attack called credential stuffing, which is essentially just that, where an attacker takes data that is in these dumps, and then they try those exact credentials against your site, uh, hoping that one of them works. So uh, for me, the value would be um, either I could try that attack, I could try, um, I could basically take the results from a database and look for the most common passwords, like search by word or length, and then if I'm going to do a password spray or try to use credentials like that against an organization, at least now I have um, some bearings in terms of like what direction to go, what type of credential to try, what might work since it's worked in so many other breaches. So I think for me, what it as an attacker, what it does is it gives you a good starting place um, for your password sprays or your credential stuffing attempts. And then of course on the def on the defensive side. Um, you can look at that data and analyze it and say, well, these are the types of passwords that are getting compromised. What is our password policy and where do we need to improve? Like, do we need to lengthen it? And typically the issue around passwords is around length um, versus, as opposed to complexity. So usually there's an opportunity to maybe make your minimum password length longer and look at areas that you need to add 2FA or um, multi-factor authentication on. Yeah, I think I think Cedric covers it really well here. I think the you know there there is some value in that data. I do think I'm always pretty reluctant to leverage that data uh, as as an enterprise myself, just due to you know sort of providence and, and ownership issues. But the you know the better thing I think we could do as an as an industry is be sharing more data about how the breaches happened, 
how we resolved them, how we identified them, how we mitigated them, and you know, getting some sort of safe harbor for putting that kind of information out there. All right, Joel, do you want to add anything else? No, no. Cedric is the expert, Great. man. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the question. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Nikhil. Sorry we couldn't hear you very Thanks. well. Maybe Thanks. next time. Uh, Henry, you're you're up. Hopefully, you have a great question. Uh, well, just we're, we're ready. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to join. Thanks, uh, and really just more some more color commentary. And I don't know if there are any folks looking, you know, to start a SaaS application. Sort of, you know, listening in to for some guidance. But you know, the the question of you know whether the the founder wants to have 100% growth without security or 20% with growth, you know the, the the hacking is so prevalent these days in ransomware and the last thing you'd want to do is start a SaaS application without you know super tight security and then have a ransomware situation where oh by the way we're going to shut down your entire business <laughs> and you know un unless you pay some sort of sort of some sort of ransom and but you know but with that said what i've seen is that you know as you know startups grow um it's it's really up to the customers to require uh, you know, sort of the infosec review and, and companies that don't have it on the, the enterprise space trying to sell enterprise software applications, I think they're absolutely going to fail in that space unless they have their SOC 2 and all the other compliance stuff in line. Um, and so, you know, so SaaS solution providers, you know, selling to small business, small business isn't really going to go through that scrutiny. Um, but but as they grow, um, you know, I've, I've never seen a, an enterprise you know, 2,500 employee or larger company not require uh, a, a really rigorous, you know, InfoSec review with a SOC 2 report. And, you know, they, they're even checking out, you know, if you're hosted on AWS, they're checking that out as well. So that's, oh, I, that, can, I just want to tell you, Henry, there definitely add, are add that color commentary. That oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. I, well, I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but I, yeah. I have been shocked and appalled before about the yeah. depth at which some companies will go through uh, versus others. Um, yeah, interesting. I just want to point out, like, I think I think you're absolutely right. The small to medium businesses, especially the mom and pops, so to speak, um, you know, don't either don't know that they should ask these questions, or you know, aren't really capable of asking and investigating them. Right. And the reality is, like, those are the people that are hurt the most uh, by an organization that doesn't have a strong security program, right? If you if you're a mom and pop dental shop or I don't know, a bait and tackle shop or something like that, and you're hit by ransomware, you don't just recover, right? You're, you know, if you've lost your entire uh, member or customer list, or if you've uh, lost your payroll or you've, your bank account is frozen, uh, you know, that's it. You might just be out of business. Uh, yeah. Whereas I think large organizations can recover. Well, you know, and I think, I think one of the things that isn't like really covered um, that at least I haven't seen covered publicly, right? Like, like everybody talks about the rate of growth in the security space and how security spend just keeps growing and growing and growing. And like, it doesn't seem to really be growing on the top end, right? Like it's not that it's not that Citigroup tripled their staff and doubled their spending, right? Like they've always spent a lot of money on, on security, right? So is Lockheed Martin. So is Boeing. Like these are the people that have always done that. Um, what's happening is, is that it's SMB, right? Like, SMB is buying security mostly from small resellers or MSPs in their regions, um, but they are spending money on security. And you're seeing this happen in a lot of the companies that are kind of servicing those markets. And ultimately, 
you know, to Henry's point, it's ransomware. Like ransomware is just driving this boom in SMB spending because they're the ones that are getting hit. And that's kind of like really distorting, I think, the overall picture that we're seeing in the security industry. Yep. But, For sure. Yeah. All right, Cedric, do you have anything you, you want to add or we can move on? No, that was good stuff. All right. Thanks for the great question, Henry. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, Aaron, you're, you are the next contestant. What is your amazing question? And before you ask it, I'll just remind everybody that this is recorded. Uh, when you do raise your hand, you're agreeing for your, uh, your voice to be used on our podcast. Uh, but go ahead, Aaron. I don't have a question, Jeff. I just had a follow-up with what uh, Henry and Joel were discussing, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Go for it. I, I'm, at a, I'm a compliance engineer at a small company. Uh, we're coming out of the startup phase. So it was interesting to hear Joel's comments regarding you know, that uh, what I kind of understood is that shuffle of the 20% towards security and then you know, growing that business. And, and we're in that um, growth phase now where we're starting to hit those Fortune 1000, Fortune 500 companies. And Henry mentioned you know, seeing companies uh, going through those deep uh, InfoSec reviews and things. So we're actually undergoing our SOC 2 right now. Um, and I would agree with Joel that it is very surprising having done the security reviews with companies who don't, uh, even in those Fortune 1000 and 500 style companies that you think would make it the utmost important. So in lieu of a SOC 2, Type 2 being in place, these companies will ask for those security reviews. And it is disheartening uh, and also surprising at the same time to see how many of them don't really do thorough reviews. Um, and we're talking big tech companies um, and so on. And of course, I'm not going to name any names, but I would agree with Joel there on that. Um, and again, uh, as we look to see, you know, uh, as we shift monies and finances around to be able to uh, posture ourselves for those big companies that are doing the right thing and, you know, requiring those in-depth reviews uh, to see that dance, if you will, in that chess game of, of moving the money around to make sure that we're meeting those sales and as the you know annual contract values rise and, and things like that. So I just wanted to give my perspective on it and uh, act uh, what Jeff said or Joel said. My bad. Thank you all. He's the smart one. Uh, well, well, thanks, thanks, Aaron. All right, uh, or Joel, Cedric, anything you wanted to add? No, yeah, I think mine. You know, it's interesting for for early stage companies that are starting to figure out their sales motion. Um, as Aaron was saying, like it, I think part of the, and this is kind of horrible, but I think like, if you talk to, if you talk to sales folks or founders that are in enterprise that are selling to enterprise, like part of the, the qualification process, you know, very early on when you're starting to, to prospect is figuring out which customers, you know, the level of security review you have to go through, because if it's a, if it's a six to eight month, like review process, which it is for some like high assurance companies, like you know, as a small company, that's a lifetime, right? And so I think it becomes, like, you get very good at kind of figuring out sort of like, hey, Series A to Series C companies, this is the this is the vertical, we're going to target them. And then you get really easy or easier, like, sales motion there, as opposed to, like, selling to Citigroup as your first customer, which, you know, I would say, I think there's a lot of security companies that initially run to, like, hey, I want Lockheed Martin as a customer because they deal with all the crazy stuff. But like that's actually probably one of the more difficult customers you could get very early on, and probably not like great for like building the business. But anyway, sorry, I'm rambling. I'll stop. It's all good. Cedric, anything to add? No, I'm just uh, soaking it in. Soak, soak it up. 
All right, uh, we're getting close to the end here. If anybody else uh, wants to raise their hand, uh, please do so. Oh, well, Henry might have something else, else to add. Yeah, go just, ahead, Henry. Just the last point was, um, I don't know if it was Joel or Jeff said that you're aware of some, you know, definite enterprise size companies that aren't requiring, you know, comprehensive InfoSec reviews for SaaS solution providers. My only comment on that would be those companies obviously employ, you know, chief information security officers. So, so those CISOs are uh, are mailing it in <laughs> if they're if they're not conducting the type of review that they should, right? Yeah, I think. Well, and let me be clear. Um, I think every Fortune 500 uh, has some amount of third-party risk uh, assessment that they go through as part of their sourcing and uh, procurement process. But I have definitely been surprised in the past by how surface level that is for some organizations versus others. Uh, and so, it, surface surface might be just send us your SOC two, and we're good. Yeah, send us your SOC two. Maybe we'll read it. Maybe we won't. And yeah. uh, we're all we're all good. Thanks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which. Sales teams really appreciate, uh, but I think sure. uh, I think it just it, it underscores something we've ran Joel and I've ranted out about before, which is there's no standardized third party risk assessment process, uh, yeah. and some people are good at it and some people are not. Yeah. Well, maybe you guys should uh, develop a standard, sort of the ANSI of uh, of InsoSec. <laughs> uh, if only if only it were that easy. Well, somebody's got to start it. Somebody's got to start it, though, right? Oh, yeah. There, yeah. There, there are plenty of people working on that target now, and I'm glad to let them to continue because I've, I've died in that desert on crypto standards, and I am good. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, there are, Thanks, a lot of, there are a lot, there are a lot of bones in that desert. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Thank you, Henry. All right, Jeff, I think that concludes this week's show. Although I'll say we haven't had our movie recommendation from you uh, for this week, so uh, do you want to you want to give us a criterion oh, yeah. uh, recommendation? A criterion recommendation. So I've I for some reason have been unpacking the influences of Quentin Tarantino for some time now, uh, and that was sort of the Fellini eight and a half recommendation from last week. Um, this week, I think you know I I watched uh, I watched uh, earlier this week I watched The Wild Bunch, which is Sam Peckinpah's. Um, masterpiece. Uh, it is It is quite the incredible movie. I think it's in the AFI top 10, if not top five. Um, everybody should see it. It's, it's, it, is, uh, it is a really interesting film. Um, and it has spawned, obviously, millions of other films. So that would be my recommendation for the week. Well, there you have it. With that, we'll, we, we end one more installation of the Breach of the Week. Thank you, Cedric, for joining us. Uh, and thank, thank you, you, everybody else, for your great questions. Thank you, everybody. Have a and good we'll week. And we'll see you next time. Same bat channel, same breach, breach place. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye.